Hey, Lori. Thanks so much. It's an honor to have you on the show. Hey, Deepak. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Let's get into a little bit of uh, your personality questions. If you were the governor for one day of North Carolina, what would you do? I think I would expand Medicaid. Good short answer. If you had to change one rule in the government process, what would it be? Um, I think I'd like to streamline the court system so it's more accessible to the citizens um, and and uh, not as easily abused as it is today. And would you want to expand on that a little bit? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I, I'm a lawyer by training. And so um, the courthouse doesn't scare me. The process doesn't scare me. And, and I understand it. But I, I find that there are a lot of people that just don't know how to access the court system to, to take advantage of some of the rights and privileges that they have and, and that they end, up, they end up suffering from that, you know, whether it's from an employer that is taking advantage of them and discriminating against them, or if it's a landlord that isn't treating them right, or, or it's someone who isn't, isn't paying their landlord, you know, and the landlord's trying to get them out. Um, I just, I found that there are a lot of times in life where you see something happening that looks unjust and you know that the person should be able to go to the court system and get justice. And it just doesn't feel accessible to everybody. Hmm. Interesting. And do you feel the current youth, are they um, becoming more aware of the government relations and the processes or how would you change that if, if it's not? Um, I'm not so sure that the that youth are, are paying more attention. Um, you know, my kids served as pages at the Senate. Um, I wanted them to see the process. I wanted them to understand it. Uh, I think that is a wonderful program that we have. We also have it at the governor's office where kids can page and see how government works. Um, and it, it was interesting how they started to follow issues and they they did this a number of years ago and they still remember the members and the characters, but the issues as well. Um, I think that's Im important uh, for our youth, but I find that most of them aren't paying attention to the big issues. Um, and I don't think that's new to just this generation. I think that's probably something we've seen for decades, but. Hmm. How would you change that if you were given a chance? How would you get the youth to be more involved? I mean, I guess maybe I would call Epic Games and see if we could try to create some sort of some sort of game for them that uh, that allows them to be senators or house members or governors. And, and um, I feel like there's somebody out there, I'm not the creative enough person to do it, but I feel like there are creative people out there who could come up with some sort of platform such as yourself uh, um, to, to get kids more involved in, in the process. I mean, when I was a little kid, we had those commercials. Um, they were cartoons. And the one about, um, I'm just a bill. This is how a bill becomes a law. I can still sing that song. I'm not going to do that for you today. But <laughs> um, 
it was it was a fascinating way to teach kids about civics um, or conjunctions. There was also the conjunction one. Um, but I think that you have to start making it more accessible to them and talking to them on a level that they're able to receive the messaging and and get involved. That's a really cool and creative idea, actually. Yeah, you think about it. I was when I was a kid too. I was I was actually thinking about building something like that, where you get to be um, like a president or prime minister or whatever of the country, and if you it would throw you real world problems. And how would you solve them? You know, I was thinking about it. So maybe you and I should talk about this after the podcast. Okay, I'm in. <laughs> um, what three skills you think are essential for someone to be a good lobbyist? Uh, I think, I think integrity um, is first and foremost. I think um, you you also have to be agile um, and. Um, and it doesn't hurt if you're smart, but you know, that's a wide spectrum. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, what is your favorite destination spot? I like to travel, so I just ask these questions. Oh, my favorite destination spot. Um, uh, probably Costa Rica. I I really enjoyed Costa Rica. Um, huh. I, I like outdoors type things i like um being active i like nature um so that's probably been one of my favorite places so far oh nice if you weren't a lobbyist what would you be i would i would go back to just being a regular lawyer um i i was a litigator for a long time i was a jag um and then i did litigation um in the civilian world and i i think i would be doing that Oh, cool. And um, if you had to educate the public um, about government relations, lobbying, and the role of a lobbyist, how would you educate them? You know, I think most people mistakenly believe that lobbyists just go out for dinners or drinks or golfing. Um, Socializing is definitely an aspect of it because you're building relationships. I mean, you, you, you're, if you're a good lobbyist, you're a facilitator and you're an advocate, uh, you're an advocate for your clients and you're facilitating, you're, you're not just facilitating ideas, but you're facilitating relationships. Um, and you're, you're trying to connect people with common interests or sometimes not common interests and you're trying to get them to come to a compromise. But I, I think that a lot of times people don't realize um, that it's really about relationships and I don't mean in terms of, um, you know, just friendships, but it's it's really about understanding people and understanding how to negotiate through compromise um, and and getting to a consensus. I know you've had a very long and esteemed uh, career. Uh, and you probably would have a lot of success. Um, what I like is to learn about what you learned from your failures. Um, was there any failure you can tell us? And, you know, what did you learn from it? Um, I, I, I think the primary thing I learned, I, so one of the failures that sticks with me is a case, it was a court case I did um, in San Antonio, Texas, 
I was a special assistant U.S. attorney there. And um, I, I had a person who had driven onto the military base with a firearm in the car and it was concealed in a glove box. And so we take them to federal magistrate's court and we prosecute them for that. And, and the attorney was the public defender, federal public defender, and he never came to me with a deal. And it just seemed really odd to me. Like I couldn't understand why he wasn't coming to me. I, I, I thought I had his client dead to rights. And um, we got into court. It was a bench trial. Um, my military police officer was on the stand. I was asking him questions. And it was in that moment that I found out that he hadn't done something I had asked him to do. He, he was supposed to check the um, title on the vehicle. And I needed him to do it himself and certify it. And he didn't realize I needed him to do it himself. And he'd asked someone else to do it for him. That becomes hearsay. And there wasn't an exception. And I had to prove the ownership of the vehicle. And the defense attorney knew this. And it's why he hadn't come with a deal. And I learned in that moment, my gut had been telling me all along, something's off, something's wrong. You're missing something. And I didn't listen to it. Um, and I learned in that moment that it's important to listen to my gut and sometimes to take a pause and, and just reevaluate where we're at before I move forward. That's a really cool thing to learn. Um, if you had a chance um, to change the world, um, how would you change it? <clears throat> oh, my goodness. Um, You mean like the people or, or a thing? Like, I, help um, me a little bit. How would you, like, let's say, I'm going to change this question a bit uh, further. If you had all the money in the world, right? You know, let's say if you're a big billionaire, so you had a lot of money at your disposal, how would you change the world with it? Gosh, that becomes even harder. Um, I think <laughs> because I, I don't, I don't always think money's the answer to solving our problems um, or making the world better. Mm -hmm. um, if, if it were about money, I think I would focus on marginalized groups and areas and trying to elevate them. And, and by that, I mean, for instance, you know, a lot of times we don't think about what's going on in another part of the world and we don't think about it as impacting us. We may hear that there's a, you know, a, a crisis, they don't have a vaccine or they don't have enough water. And we, we just think, wow, that's a shame for them. And we go about our day. And I don't think that we really necessarily understand that eventually those problems do become our problems, whether it be through travel or commerce, or whether it's just the people in that geographic region end up, um, you know, becoming a larger group with a larger voice at some point and wanting to weigh in and it starts factoring in. You know, when I was um, at the War College, I one of the classes that we took was on different issues around the world. And, you know, we looked at where a current geography and where populations were going to grow and which populations were going to be the dominant populations 
projection, you know, in the future. And I was amazed to see that Africa was going to be one of the largest, not just land space, but population wise. And then when you look at Africa today and you see many of the struggles that they have, and yet that population continues to expand and grow at some point, you may feel safe sitting over here in the United States, but you're, you're going to have to address that. It's going to bubble over um, and it's going to create problems. And so I think I would want to focus on those types of groups and, and having them have a better quality of life and sort of, you know, a rising tide rises all, raises all boats kind of thing. So oh, wow. a little Pollyannish, I get it, but <laughs> that's okay. my money. In, in this, the hypothetical, it's my money to spend as I want. So that's how I'm going to spend it. I mean, this is, <laughs> that's a very good creative answer. I mean, you're using the money in the right cause. So I think I appreciate that. So that's a very cool <laughs> answer. Um, let's jump a little bit into your childhood. Can you tell us a little bit as to, you know, how, where did you grow up and how was your childhood like? And, and were you interested in politics at all? Um, so, no, I was not interested in politics at all. Um, I grew up in Maryland, um, outside of about 20 minutes outside of D.C. Um, so I grew up really in the shadow of, of the Capitol and Washington, but I had no interest in politics. Like uh, Politicians were on the TV all the time, um, and we would go to D.C. quite a bit to go enjoy all the museums and, and such. But um, no, I didn't really, and I didn't really hold them in high esteem, I got to say. Like the first politician I remember really focusing on was Richard Nixon when he was president. I was a kid and um, my great uncle worked with the Teamsters. And so he had gone to meet with President Nixon and, and had a photo of him. And uh, I just thought that was the coolest thing. Um, but Otherwise, I tried not to pay attention to any of that stuff. It just seemed like a bunch of hot air. Um, so I, I grew up in, in Maryland. Um, I have a younger brother and a younger sister, so I'm the oldest, as they continue to remind me. And um, my family was very close. We were very close with my grandparents and, and my cousins. We did, you know, the week at the beach every summer at Myrtle Beach. Uh, even before 95 was interstate 95. And we had to make that a two day drive to get down. We'd usually come down to Durham and stop in Durham. My grandfather was from Durham. Uh, my great grandmother worked at the pantyhose factory, the Haynes factory. And um, they lived over by the old Durham Bull Stadium. And so that's where I played a lot as a kid during the summers. And um, yeah, it was, it was, it was good. It was a good childhood. I, I enjoyed it. Nice. And at what point did you move over to North Carolina? So I, I ended up being stationed in North Carolina at Fort Bragg. Um, so I, I went to law school. I went to college at University of Maryland, Fear the Turtle, uh, College Park, and then went to law school. Um, and I had always wanted to join the military. And I just didn't think it was something that you did like out of high school, unless you were in trouble and a judge told you you needed to join the military uh, or you didn't have money to go to college. And my dad at this point um, owned a plumbing business and, you know, had said he would pay for my college if I wanted to go. So I went to college. I didn't join the military. And then at the end of college, I was thinking again about the military 
but I got accepted to law school and I was like, well, I'm not passing this up. And I was in law school in my third year, taking a new class it was new at the time. Now I think it's standard um, course. Uh, it was called national security law. And um, my instructor was a retired Marine Corps judge. And that is when I found out that the military had lawyers. And so he started talking to me about the judge advocate general's corps. We call it the JAG corps. It, this was before the TV show you know, so, um, and I, I applied and I wanted to go live overseas. Um, I had spent a, a summer semester abroad, um, studying comparative criminal law and I wanted to go live overseas and not be one of those kids that was just finding herself backpacking through Europe. That wouldn't have been really cool in my family. So, um, I needed like a real paying job and a reason to be there. Um, and so I, I thought the military would do that for me. So ended up joining the military. And um, my first duty station was Fort Carson, Colorado in Colorado Springs. And then I went to San Antonio, Texas, and then Germany. So I did get overseas. And I was coming back to the States. Um, and I ended up at Fort Bragg. And um, I was already airborne. So I was super excited to be there. It's one of the places that was on my wish list. I know people are like, you wanted to go to Fayetteville? I desperately wanted to go to Fort Bragg. It is the center of the universe, as any of us will tell you. Uh, and that's how I started living um, in North Carolina. You know, I had family here in Mayadan, up by, up by Eden, up by Senator Burger's district. Um, and I have family in Durham still. And um, I just, I don't know. I, I've always liked North Carolina. And I thought it was a great place to raise my kids. It was close enough to home that I can get to my family by car um, whenever I want and far enough away that I had my space. So. so I see that you had a passion to get into law. Why was that? And when did that start? It, it, I think I've always been attracted to um, the law, particularly criminal law. Um, when I was in fifth grade, I had a wonderful teacher named Mrs. Janoni, and she highlighted for my parents that if they wanted me to get, uh, wanted to get me to read more, they needed to buy me Nancy Drew and Hardy Boy books. And um, so I think I read every single one of them, and I'm not exaggerating, between the books my parents bought me and the bookmobile, um, I really wore those, those books out. Um, and then I also remember finding a book about F. Lee Bailey that my dad had on his bookshelf and I took it and read it and I was, I was hooked. Um, but I didn't set out to go to law school. When I went to college, I actually started off as a psychology major. I was fascinated about the way people's brains work and why they do the things they do. And, and as I started getting into that, I found I really liked abnormal psychology. And then as I thought about it, I, I really was more interested in why people commit crime and and really how to stop them or how to punish them for it. And um, so that, that led to law school. Okay. And why this passion for being in the army? And I mean, I'm, I'm, the reason I'm asking that is, first of all, thank you for your service there. And I see you've been doing that for 27 years. So why this passion for army? Um, I, I never... Anybody who knows me, they know I have a lot of energy and I never saw myself as, as having a job where I was stuck behind a desk 
all the time. And, um, and frankly, my, my family just in us a real sense of service. My dad um, served in the army. My grandfather was Navy. He was a torpedo man in World War II in the Pacific. My uncle also served in the army. Um, and my other grandfather was a police officer in Washington, DC. So it just, it, it felt natural to me. Um, and it like, it felt like a job that gave you purpose. And, and that was really important to me. I wanted to feel like I was contributing something. Yeah. And, and were you the only child who's interested in going into army or your siblings are into it as well? My siblings saw what I did and they did not follow. (laughs) (laughs) No. Although my sister um, went on to become a nurse and was a critical care nurse for a number of years and now works with, and then the school system and the department of corrections. Um, And then my brother went into business and sales. Okay, cool. And what was your first job after you got your law degree? Um, so after I got my law degree and after the army sent me to, uh, Fort Lee, Virginia for, for basic training, which is not the same basic training as everybody else gets. Um, and, and then they send you to the army JAG school, which is at the university of Virginia in Charlottesville. It's on the campus there, um, where you go and spend about three months learning how to be an army lawyer. And then my first duty station was Fort Carson, Colorado. So I went from basic to airborne school at Fort Benning, Georgia. And when I completed Fort Benning airborne school, I got in my new Jeep Cherokee that I had just bought and drove across country or halfway across the country to Fort Carson. And I was um, a legal assistance attorney. So I did wills, powers of attorney, um, divorce, you know, separation agreements, child custody, name changes, stuff like that. Family law, what we would think of as family law. Okay. So in your career, um, I see you've been working with the Department of Justice, Department of Transportation, Department of Motor Vehicles. Were these all in the field of uh, the law side of law practice? Or at some point you switched your gears towards government relations? So all of my jobs were, were legal. Um, I was a ter- I was an attorney in the JAG Corps. I was on active duty for seven years. I left active duty um, and became a stay-at-home mom for my two kids. Um, and then after 9-11, I was angry, like a lot of other folks, and I joined the Army Reserves. Um, and then when I started working full-time, I worked at the Department of Justice, and I was the attorney assigned to do the state health plan. Um, and so I, I started doing that. I did that for about three years. And I had done a case that involved a friend of Senator Tony Rand. And apparently Senator Rand liked the work that I did on the case. And so he, his, one of his best friends was Secretary of Transportation, Lindo Tippett. And uh, Secretary Tippett was looking for a general counsel and they had just created the position. He, he tried to talk me into it for 12 months. I'm not going to lie. The, the poor man called me in four times over 12 months to talk to me. I thought it was a trick. I thought that, I thought that Senator Rand was not happy with my work and that he was trying to find a way to get rid of me. Um, and I finally realized that it was a it was serious offer. And, um, and I went to work for Secretary Tippett as the general counsel. 
and had a wonderful experience there. And then um, was over at DMV and headed up the hearing section. And the DMV is a very hard place to work. Um, And I hope all of your listeners think about this the next time they have to interact with the DMV. The people at the DMV, think about it. They only see a very small number of people happy because the only people happy at the DMV are the 16 year olds getting their driver's license. Anybody else going to the DMV is probably not happy that they're at the DMV because you're paying a fine or you're paying a registration fee or you're dealing with bureaucracy and you're taking it out on those poor people that work there. Give them a break folks. Um, they deserve it. And um, I, the, the Republicans took control of the general assembly in 2011. And I, got a phone call one day. I was actually at Fort Bragg. I had been mobilized um, for a second time down there and I was driving home and they said, we, we want to know if you want to come work for us. And um, so I ended up working for Senator Brunstetter. I was part of the pro tem staff assigned to Senator Brunstetter um, to be the council, the legal counsel for the Judiciary One Committee. Oh, okay. So, so they were all legal. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, and after that is when you got, you step your feet into government relations. Yeah. I, I'm the accidental lobbyist. Hmm. Um, senator Brunsetter was absolutely an amazing Senator and an amazing person. Uh, he's one of my dearest friends to this day. When he left the Senate, um, he went to work at Novon health. And he reached out to me and asked me if I'd be interested in coming to work there uh, for him. And I said, I'd follow him anywhere. And so he had um, been able to create a position in the government relations shop for me to come there. And that's how I got into government relations. I was also the liaison to the legal department. So I kind of still got to see some legal stuff, but I didn't get to go to court anymore or represent them as a client. But uh, that's why I say I'm the accidental lobbyist. I, I never set out on this path. I didn't, I wasn't a poli sci major. I didn't intern for, you know, a bunch of legislators and say, wow, this is what I want to do with my life. I never worked on a campaign. Um, I had never made a political contribution to anyone. So um, really just kind of stumbled into it. And would you say that um, he- if someone is listening to this and let's say they're, they're debating whether to get a law degree to get into government relations, do you think the law degree helped you? I definitely think the law degree helps. I don't think you have to have the law degree. Um, I think, I think what's important if you want to be good at government relations is that you be smart, um, hardworking, uh, and that you be a really good communicator. Um, and and, and like I said earlier, a facilitator. I, I think the law degree helps. Um, it helps you when you're trying to deal with the statutes and reading them and understanding them. But I'm, you know, North Carolina has some of the most difficult statutes to read in the country. I, they're, they're challenging. Um, it helps me when I'm trying to recommend solutions um, and because I can draft language and propose language and others can do it as well. I just think I have, I have an advantage being a lawyer. I think the other way that having a law degree helps you is not just the degree, but actually working as a lawyer, you understand what it means to have a client. You understand the rules around client confidentiality. 
Um, and, and I think that that is really, really important in lobbying. Um, it, it's, it can be challenging at times and you have to remember where those lanes are and, and be able to stick to them. And I, I really feel like being a lawyer helped me navigate that more easily in this role. Very cool. And now you are the vice president of government relations at HCA Healthcare. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what HCA Healthcare is all about and what your mission here is? Yeah. So HCA, excuse me, HCA Healthcare is the largest um, healthcare corporation in the country. Um, We have 22 divisions, including the United Kingdom and Alaska. Uh, we have a, over 183 hospitals. Last I counted, we, we buy and sell. So we, I might be off by a couple um, one way or the other. But um, And I've really been impressed. They're a for-profit company. And I get asked a lot in what I think about a for-profit company in healthcare. Um, and I, I've now worked for a nonprofit and a for-profit. And I can say they're, they're all treating the same patients. They're all providing the same types of care. They're all chasing the same types of dollars and the same types of technology and the same types of talent. Um, I think the two big differences that I see is I feel like at least the for-profit that I've worked for, um, we, we get to decisions quicker. It is, it is much more crisp, it is much more precise, um, you would think with as large as HCA is that we would have been stumbling all over ourselves during the pandemic, trying to react. Things were, were happening, happening very rapidly. I mean, something that could be one way at nine o'clock in the morning had completely changed by 10 o'clock in the morning. And I was really, really impressed with how quickly they could adapt to the situation and the, their large scale across the company allowed them to take in data um, and assimilate it really quickly. So the advantage here in North Carolina was we have hospitals in California. And if you remember, California saw things before we saw them here, right? So California could be three three weeks to a month ahead of us. So we had already seen things there, like like the drive-through testing. We had already tried that in other places. So when it came to North Carolina, we knew that if you did that, you burn through your PPE really quickly and your testing materials and the, the benefit wasn't worth the, the payout at that time because there was such a shortage of PPE and, and such. So when it came to North Carolina, we didn't, do, we didn't do that here. And some people criticized us for that, but it's because we'd already tried it and we knew it didn't work as well as we would like it to. Um, so I was, I was really impressed with their scale and their agility, um, and with their, really with their commitment to communities. Uh, they they want to be a good corporate citizen, and they take a lot of time and energy uh, and money, frankly, to do that. Um, okay. And um, can you tell us maybe uh, an example of a policy you've been working with them, maybe in the session, this session or the past, previous one of the previous sessions? Well, uh, earlier you asked me if I was governor for a day, what would I do? And I said, Medicaid expansion. Now, in fairness to the governor, he can't do it by himself. Mm. He needs the legislature to, to also allow it. But um, Medicaid expansion and, and something called the healthcare stabilization 
and access program, or sorry, healthcare access and stabilization program, um, are, are two of the biggest things that we've been working on. HASP, as we call it, is a program that would allow hospitals to provide um, the state with money to send up to the federal government to draw money down um, that could then be used for a host of things, some things for the Department of Health and Human Services, some of the grant programs and things that they are, are doing. Some of the money could go to the general fund. It could be used for education. It could be used for transportation. Um, and then some of the money would come back to the hospitals and, and allow them to, you know, become more financially stable. There's a lot of um, uncertainty and instability across the country right now in healthcare and in North Carolina. And we wanna keep all of the hospitals that started, uh, that were in operation when the pandemic started, we wanna keep all of them open. And, and it would allow us to cover the state share of Medicaid expansion, which would allow us to then expand Medicaid. Um, and, I, and I just wanna take a second to give a plug because I know that's not the point to this interview necessarily, but I just want folks to understand when we talk about expanding Medicaid, we're talking about people who are already out there in the workforce who are working hard every single day to try to make ends meet. Um, these are the people, that, think of the adult that served you your lunch at Chick-fil-A at, at 12 o'clock in the afternoon, um, or, or the fireman, or the farmer, or the fisherman on the coast who's bringing in the wonderful tilapia that we're all enjoying. You know, I, these are people that are very hardworking and the market has just become such that they can't afford healthcare premiums and they, and, or they don't work for jobs that provide them for them. And these people are already out there using our services and, and they're either not getting the care they need to be the healthiest they could be, or they're waiting until they're they're in an unhealthier place to get that care, and it's costing the hospitals more, it's costing the citizens more, and it's not giving these citizens the quality of life they deserve. So they're they're already in our system. I've heard some folks say, "Well, we'll have a we'll have an overrun that we haven't seen that in other states." And these people are already living here in our in our state. They're already using our services, and the difference is now we can get reimbursed for them and they have better access to care. So, and not just going to the emergency room at the last minute um, and having worse outcomes because they waited too long. Yeah. So that's my plug, sorry. No problem, it's anything goes. Um, so we're moving into the last segment. So it's a good segue too. So let us know what you think about your aspirations and looking towards the future or any advice you would share about you know, the do's and don'ts of government relations or um, your organization. Um, so it's an open-ended question. So you can talk anything about it right now. Um, I think if I was talking to someone who was starting out in government relations and I think my one piece of advice to them would be to remember um Something my dad told me, and it was, people can take anything away from you. They can take everything away from you. There is only one thing that they cannot take from you and that you have to give away. And that's your integrity. No one can take it from you. You have to give that up. And I don't, I wouldn't give it up. It's, there's never an issue 
and there's never a client that's ever worth it. You, If you decide you're going to play a little loose with some information, you might win on an issue, but everybody's going to remember it. And sort of like winning the battle, but losing the war. So I would just say, you know, hold on to your, your integrity. Your word is your bond. Those aren't just words. Um, they're important. And they can really be your, your um, guiding principle and keep you out of trouble. So that's a, that's a very good way to end this conversation, Lori. It's, it's really a pleasure and honor to have you on the show. Um, I hope we can meet sometime soon. Okay, great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It was fun.